0: to drink for dot 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 the podcast that combines a lifelong film infatuation with an overarching love of drink an interactive journey that encourages the incorrigible while providing an intoxicating alternative to a night out think netflix and chill without the chill perhaps without the netflix and definitely without those strange implications of sex who knows maybe we'll learn something along the way or at the very least have a bit of immature fun Welcome back, everyone. I, of course, am your host, Jordan Brooks. And with me this week, joining me from New York, is the man who got me into film criticism and whose work pushed me to write better, Kyle Turner. Kyle Turner, how are you doing this evening?
1: Um. Thank you so much for having me. You're way too kind. I am doing pretty fantastically in spite of the you know, situation that we're in. I'm really excited to be here, so thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and for the listeners who... Uh, do not know this, Kyle and I have just recorded all of this before and because I'm stupid I did not hit the record button and so this is our second time through and so you're right it does sound a lot more polished than it usually does. For those of you who have never listened before this is basically the format. Kyle and I are going to give you a sober baseline. Of how we are, what our week is like, and the films that we will be discussing this week. We are going to make some drinking rules for the, uh, in this very special case, a double bill, a Stevenson. I'm double bill. Uh, and then we're going to go off. You will experience a brief ad break. We are going to experience a much longer break wherein we go and uh, become intoxicated for these films. We're going to come back and uh and discuss what we've just seen don't worry if you're listening to this now that has gone well we we weren't too intoxicated to uh to make something worthwhile to send out to your ears and so things went well kyle can you can you tell the people why we're watching steven sondheim and uh why you love him so much
1: We're watching Stephen Sondheim today, as Stephen Sondheim double feature, because I bullied Jordan into doing it, Um, but no, no, I I am very excited to be discussing Into the Woods and Evening Primrose, and this started out kind of as a way to watch watch Evening Primrose. Into the Woods is a Sondheim musical from the early 90s, I believe, uh, that was written with Music and Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and with a book by James Lapine and that takes like all the different fairy tales we grew up hearing and kind of mashes them up and explores um, ambivalence and explores the nature of morality etc etc but it started with Evening Primrose as as a way to do this because Evening Primrose is a cult tv movie musical with Music and Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim um, and a book by James Goldman who would go on to collaborate with Sondheim on Follies Um, and it's about this guy played by Anthony Perkins, who is a poet, and he decides to hide away in a department store and discovers that there are people living in the department store. And I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of like, given the social isolation and self-quarantining, a film that is about someone who's like hiding away from the world. So I thought that that would be fun to watch. It's a perfect choice. I,
0: I watched it, uh, for the first time yesterday in order to make rules for this and, uh, it's just one of those things that, I mean, it, it's hard to find on IMDb. IMDb does not auto-complete uh, you when you type in uh, Evening Primrose, and even when you do, it cuts to uh, ABC Stage 67. And uh, it, it, to me, it just really showed how much of a wonderful little hidden gem this is. And so uh, to, to all of my listeners, I do Urge you to go out and and check this out because it is it's phenomenal. It's available uh, for free. There's a great copy of it on uh, I believe it's Daily Motion. So go out, check that out. It's 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 sub an hour. Um, I I, I you said it was uh, 56 minutes long, so it, okay. it's definitely one of those things that's that's completely uh, worth your time. Now, if you are going to watch it and you do want to get uh, drunk for it. Uh, the one rule that I was able to come up with um, is drink for shadows, which seems a little bit uh, garish for, for <laughs> how uh, almost delicate of a, of a nice little thing this is. It is very, um, it's very twilight zony y and, and very uh, atmospheric, and so if you theoretically looked for all the shadows uh, in every scene, you might miss a lot of what's going on. So you can also drink, I'm gonna add this one in, you can also drink whenever anyone becomes a mannequin or whenever any mannequin becomes someone and insofar as into the woods goes we have a, a few more interesting rules there as usual my five standard rules are drink for drinking drink for death drink for blood drink for fighting and the newest of the group drink for good boys and that is drinking for an animal with which you feel an emotional connection on top of those five great standards we're going to drink anytime Meryl shows up and that is yes any time that she she shows up. We're going to drink whenever there's no music playing on the score diegetically or non-diegetically or being sung. We need uh, basically perfect quiet in the background and so you're gonna need to keep your ears peeled for that. We're gonna drink anytime James Corden gives his narration. He does some voiceover narration. We're gonna drink anytime you hear him do that. We're going to take a shot whenever he and his wife Emily Blunt, the uh, family Collect one of the items that Meryl's witch sets them into the woods to seek and we are going to drink whenever they use a fairy tale character's name specifically so cinderella rapunzel uh, jack from the beanstalk and um we have two little interactive fun ones if you're watching this with friends on skype or with a reluctant roommate or family member we are going to uh pick A character and anytime they come back into the narrative you're gonna take a little sip and then uh, finally you're going to make eyes at your television and sip something seductively whenever a prince is on screen and so with those rules I think you're going to get through this in in one fashion or another Um, it's certainly going to be something uh, when we come back and so Kyle are you ready to go into the woods
1: I am ready into the woods uh the path i don't remember the lyrics um which is an indication that i am high because i don't drink so i'm getting stoned for this
0: excellent that's what we mean by intoxication and so this is a uh, pick your own adventure as it were we will talk to you after this break This episode of Drink4 4... is brought to you by Quarantine Pets. Quarantine Pets. Are you or your partner lonely as fuck during this quarantine and just need something to snuggle up on? Quarantine Pets are the new puppies for Christmas that you can actually take the time to potty train and teach new tricks before forgetting all about them and going back to work. Go to www.quarantinepets.com to visit someone who's actually still open, selling pets during a worldwide quarantine. All right, everybody, welcome back from that Sondheimian adventure. It was wonderful for me. Kyle, how was it for you?
1: It was spectacular and dark and sad and funny and and it was great. It was great.
0: It was everything I was promised about Stephen Sondheim. And, Into the uh,
1: woods and down the dell, the path is straight. I know it well. I definitely looked at, looked up the lyrics for that. <laughs> I couldn't remember them. Sure,
0: one. I'm sure those are tattooed on your arm, buddy. <laughs> This was, uh, I mean, I guess let's start chronologically. So we'll start with hmm. Primrose. But um, okay. I mean, what a strange, a wonderfully strange thing that I guess to me almost makes me feel like I could sing Stephen Sondheim lyrics uh, because you, you're Perkins does think it. About that. <laughs> uh, no, I know, and I'm not going to. Certainly never in public. But. Uh, but like the idea that Anthony Perkins could somehow
1: mm-hmm.
0: belt out decently mm-hmm. Sondheim lyrics um, gives me the the sort of uh, overconfidence that that I might be able to do it myself.
1: You should you should do it for the pod. If you don't do it, you have to take a shot.
0: <laughs> I think I'll take the shot. <laughs> I uh yeah, no, I mean I, I think I think all the Sondheim singing belongs in your Instagram story and, and, and oh God. none of it belongs
1: oh God. here. I'm just and um Jordan's referring to the fact that I've gotten very bored while in quarantine and I've just been singing show tunes on my Instagram stories and spent a lot of Sondheim. So um yeah, I mean I agree. Uh Anthony Perkins has what Michael Koreski once described as a A nice trill or or, or, or a delightful trill and I think that's a good way to describe it he's not like a big like a big professional Broadway voice but he he can carry a tune well enough and can hit the notes that it makes sense for the character and it makes sense for him as an actor and what's interesting to me is that the first song that he has um, if you can see me I'm here is a really hard song to sing because it's It is written in a key that's really weird. And it's, I think it's in a minor key. I'm not a music person, clearly, Mm. but it is not conventional notes. Like nothing about Sondheim is ever really conventional, exactly, Mm. but it's written in a very particular way where it's very hard to reach that tone because it feels like an in-between note. It's a, yeah, I I really wanted to make a rule for uh, like Sondheim lyrics,
0: um, mm-hmm. or or for like uh, the musicality, where his like uh, the lyrics seem seem to sort of almost follow a pattern, like da 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 da, and I wanted to make a rule for that, but I know so little about music um, that mm-hmm. I couldn't like even looking it all up. I I could never really figure out what the hell any of that was called or or. If I can't do it and I sort of am inclined to want to, how can mm-hmm. I really expect my audience to, right. to, to really be like, uh, understand perfect mm-hmm. pitch and be like, drink every time mm-hmm. it, it, it's the, the key
1: is in this. It's in the key <laughs> of a, you could do, you could do a rule of maybe for next time um, our viewers do it or listeners anytime that there's supposed to be a particular rhyme with it with a word but then it turns into something else because he does that a lot
0: oh man see now that's going to be the rule um thankfully the viewers who who have listened to all this over that's the that's the only rule you need to follow instead of shadows uh, we'll do that one because that that's a that's a brilliant one because he he does do uh, as you said all this very unexpected stuff and and uh even the narrative, uh, which I know he wasn't necessarily responsible for, in *Evening Primrose* is quite unexpected. When mm-hmm. when Anthony Perkins hides the first time with, I'm not really sure what that character is supposedly dressed up as. He almost looks like uh, like a mummer from like a mummers' day parade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in his silly fur jacket, and he's standing next to what he believes is a mannequin, who he steals his jacket from, as a security guard passes through. And uh, the mannequin is very impressed with his ability to, to, to also be very still. And mm-hmm. so uh, thereby includes him in their uh, department store uh, society. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a very unexpected, a very strange place to live this this evening department store. And uh, I was just overjoyed by how by the strangeness of it all.
1: Mm. I mean, it sort of makes sense because like you, would like probably have all the resources that you could ever need in an apartment store. It's sort of like, a, in a way, a, a, a very distant precursor cousin to *Dawn of the Dead* in a way, because you're like trapped in this one particular place where you have all the products you could ever want. And there's a line that that where um, Anthony Perkins sings, "Mind to own, mind to use," and he's talking about all these different products that he could use as long as he wants to, as long as he doesn't get caught by security or by by any like daytime person, he can do whatever he wants, basically. And he doesn't have to pay rent, and he doesn't have to deal with um, anything, any kind of oppressive nature in the outside world that he would normally have to deal with. And it, to me, it, it I understand the impulse to want to hide in a department store. I think everyone has maybe had that, like, Intrusive thought. I'd be like, "What if I just stayed here and they closed down? They closed the store, and I was still here, and I could just explore, and I could have everything that I ever could need. All my essentials are here."
0: It's a it's a great point that you bring up about the the dawn of the dead, which which was the the first thing that came into my head. That that ability that that strained consumerism that i think exists within us all whether or not we like it or recognize it Mm. and uh just those those giant i guess temples to stuff that we all uh, you know i don't need these things but you know if they let me, Mm -hmm. if they, you know, if they closed one day and I could just be in here, uh, I would definitely take it with me. I would, you know, you have, you have Dawn of the Dead, you have uh, Bad Santa, Mm -hmm. where, where, uh, where they steal stuff at the mall at night. And that's really fun. You have those game shows uh, from when I was a kid, you were probably a glint (laughs) back when uh, there was a, there was a, a game show, I believe, is on Nickelodeon where kids could run through Toys R Us with a cart oh, I remember and that. just throw shit into their carts. I remember that. very vividly. like that, what I mean—that's the most vivid memory of any child because that—that mm-hmm. that is the consumerist dream that yeah. America has wrought, where they're like, "Here are the keys to this department store. Fucking go! I yeah. dare you to just." take all the stuff you want and it was really awesome to see something that was i believe what 11 years i guess older than uh, than dawn of the dead to explore this idea of just this consumerist haven this windowless yeah. uh, shrine to stuff
1: it's this consumerist utopia i think what's also interesting to me as kind of a sondheim buff is that this was made in 1967 and it comes after Sanham has done West Side Story. He did the lyrics for West Side Side Story, Uh, and before he does his first like real breakout musical, Company in 1970, which Anthony Perkins was originally going to be cast for as the lead character Poppy, but then he dropped out to direct a play or something. Um, But both of all three of these texts, as it were, are set in New York, West Side, but they're all very different versions of New York. You have West Side Story which is very much on the margins of society dealing with like young um, people of color and gang members and whatnot who are on the economic margins as well. When you have Company which is about these well-to-do middle and upper-middle class people living on like the west side and whatnot. And I kind of imagine Anthony Perkins' character in Evening Primrose, entering this department store in this middle ground trying to escape both versions, both kind of system, systemic, institutional, oppressive landscapes, and entering into this department store ostensibly again to escape these, these different worlds, only to be confronted with a different version of the same thing of this kind of consumerist hell, this hierarchical nightmare, just like the the people that he comes into contact with who also live in department store have a particular way of doing things and are just as inclined towards some sort of authoritarian uh, lifestyle, as it were. It, 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 it does present a very uh, interesting
0: thing, I guess very interesting commentary on, on uh, almost like a Hobbesian state of man where, mm-hmm. uh, where, where we're all, uh, no matter what, Going to be bound to to as you said these hierarchies, and so um, yeah, it's uh, it was a stunning thing, and uh, thank you so much for recommending it. My God, uh, I I can can only hope that my my viewers uh, take uh, intoxicated us seriously enough to uh, to go out and see this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so good, it's and so weird and so sad. Like, I've watched it, I. I I'd been tangentially aware of it for a few years, and then I found it on YouTube this past year. Honestly, I think um, I just became very obsessed with it, and I've watched it five or six times now, and I cry every time at the ending.
0: It's so terribly sad. It's—I uh, mean, it's—it's it's another one of those uh, those unexpected things, and. Um... As much as yes, I I I am uh, I am freely opening and willing to admit that I did uh, cry at the ending. I, I have no idea if it's uh, if it's the COVID isolation of, of my <laughs> yeah. life or. Uh, uh, if I need to get some therapy, or if if it does hit that hard, I think that's one of the uh, the one of the problems.
1: Why not uh, of, Yeah,
0: exactly. Right. I mean, uh, certainly it is very, very good and very, very emotionally impactful. But just like uh, Perkins's uh, poet, I uh, I am stuck indoors, and mm-hmm. everything just sort of hits a little bit harder these days just such a special piece, and then uh, to move from that somehow to into the woods—what a what an
1: amazing change of pace! So, there in the early '90s, I think '93, PBS recorded the original Broadway cast version um, for their Great Performances series for television. So, it wasn't the same thing as Evening Primrose, because Evening, or not, not the. Totally the same thing because Evening Primrose was made as part of ABC Stage 67, which was usually a series of live television plays. And a lot, and t- TV has like a long history of live television plays, and a lot of movies like 12 Angry Men and Days of Wand Roses and Mighty start out as live television plays as a way to like get people to watch television and as opposed to going to the movies because you couldn't do a live movie at that time. Um, and so the it, Evening Primrose was like, first and foremost a, a TV movie, whereas Into the Woods was first and foremost a Broadway musical. And then PBS decided to record it on stage for Great Performances, which was their series of recording Broadway and off-Broadway shows so that the public could watch them. Mm-hmm. And that's still going on today. And they've done a couple other Sondheims as well, um, including Company, the 2006 revival, well, the original Broadway cast version is v- available on YouTube. The film version, um, which came out in 2014, that is... Pro- is that on D- Disney Plus? I don't it's know. It's not,
0: unfortunately. Uh, my... Uh- my wonderful wife just got our family access to Disney+. Plus, and so I've been sort of perusing that uh, half-heartedly, I must admit, because I also Their just, library is so weird. It really is. I, I just got a Shudder um, subscription, and so I've been doing uh, a lot more horror, and I just really can't be bothered to to watch, um, say, a, a Disney Channel original. But yeah. uh, this is going to be available on Disney+. Plus as of November twenty twenty. So, oh. um right in time for us to be all released back into the public. Not gonna uh, you know. Yeah, right. We will uh, we will all get to, to stay in and watch into the woods. So for whatever reason, this uh, this Disney original film will be available in, in what is that, like five months? Five, six yeah. months?
1: It always struck me as very ironic. I mean, the original cast is with Bernadette Peters and Joanna Gleason, who you might remember as Rachel's boss on Friends. That's where I know her from. <laughs> She's been in other things, but that is where I know her from. But I always felt that text of Into the Woods is is basically a masterpiece. But this particular adaptation is very weird because Into the Woods is... Fundamentally a deconstruction of these not only these particular fairy tales, but the reason that we tell them Why we are so attracted to these stories, what they mean to us, what their cultural and familial baggage is to us. And it always also struck me as somewhat satirical of the way in which these kinds of stories will get kind of funneled through this family-friendly filter by a, a gigantic conglomerate like Disney, who made it, most of its money towards the beginning, animating and making presentable versions of these, of these fairy tales, and that Disney would end up like making, a, making the film adaptation of a film that is deconstructing and satirizing what Disney did for much of its history is always always really fascinating to me. It, it, it
0: is absolutely very, uh, very interesting in in that respect. I think uh, it, it was first sort of uh, thrust into my face in the moment when um, especially now's like 2020's Johnny Depp, where we mm-hmm. all uh. sort of see Johnny Depp differently. But mm-hmm. he also in this. Has a musical number about uh, this little girl's pink plump skin, and uh, it's just how creepy mm-hmm. uh, these old fairy tales are. Uh, mm-hmm. When when I was in college, one of the of my literature models uh, modules rather uh, that I was required to take was on Indo-European folktales. And so I had to read the uh, quite a few of the original uh, folklore f- for these films. So uh, seeing this and seeing uh, a creepy Johnny Depp lusting over a a young Red Riding Hood was uh, was certainly something that was uh, was jarring and uh, and made Disney's very. Cool, family-friendly uh, editions of a lot of these narratives come across as uh, a lot creepier and mm-hmm. a lot, uh, a lot more. Uh, maybe we should think twice about uh, figuring this stuff out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me that the, these fairy tales went through such a defanging, a moral, and and political defanging, and then this text Into the Woods is supposed to reapply it, but by the nature of it being a family-friendly Disney film, can't do that. Like it is, it's these two different kinds of authorship being um, pressed up against one another because you have James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim's uh, book and, and lyrics, which are very clearly illustrating the dark, the inherent darkness of these of these tales, and their, I think, their impact on the way in which we understand anything from moral relativism to predation. Like mm-hmm. the the song that, that you're referring to is um, "Hello Little Girl," and in the original Broadway cast uh, production, the costume for the wolf, the big bad wolf, had like hanging genitals. Hanging oh, like male wow. organs, and that's changed. Uh, also, what's interesting to me is um, this film deliberately casts um, Little Red Riding Hood and Jack as of and the Beanstalk as children, and that has that has changed and been uh, that's had like a fluidity to it throughout different productions. Because sometimes you'll get like actual kids playing those parts, and then sometimes you'll have teenagers. Um, and then sometimes you'll have like adults who are supposed to be, who are supposed to read as naive and stupid, and it's curious to me like how much of the original meaning of Into the Woods can still be gleaned if you make it really really literal.
0: It is, it is super interesting in that way. I, I, I find it uh, wonderful to to imagine uh, Johnny Depp's character having a costume uh let's say a genital costume um Begenital. to to uh, to, uh co- coin a phrase perhaps and uh i mean in in his I, I think i think seeing johnny depp in 2020 you you pretty much um uh see genitals in in johnny depp's eyes whenever whenever you <laughs> see him after the fact um and uh, and and so, it it does quite come across these days in 2014. I'm not sure if it would if 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 uh, if the creepiness of Johnny Depp would necessarily come across because we all sort right. of know him as uh, Captain Jack Sparrow
1: or, or other thing. I don't know. I I think that's the problem with the film, honestly, because it's ca- again caught between this authorship between the original version and then this Disney version, because if you don't already have that like baggage of knowing or having an idea of who Johnny Depp is today, that scene is not really clear, because it's implying, it has some of the original implication that the Big Bad Wolf is um, allegorical or metaphorical for a predator or a child molester of some sort, and you have him, like, whip out his coat with candy and all these trinkets and whatnot, to lure Little Red Riding Hood. That's clearly an indication of uh, predation and whatnot. But then, whether it's the direction or depth acting, he makes him a little bit more wily and fun in a way that doesn't make sense for that scene and that character. And it's supposed to be, like, deeply uncomfortable, but when I saw it in, in 2014, and even watching it now, I don't feel like there is the clarity, this is supposed to be a really uncomfortable scene. And even if you're enjoying the song, especially if you're enjoying the song, because it's great. It's a great song. Some yeah, it is. is. It's it makes you feel lyrics. like shit for liking it. Yeah. You, it, especially if you're liking the song, it should be really disconcerting that this is a song of seduction to a, an underage girl ostensibly
0: and and that is uh i guess one of the the brilliant things about this is the music and not necessarily the film is is trying to return these morality tales these these ideas of 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 what we need our our children to behave like what we need our society to sort of fall in line with um And taking all of those original sort of uh, like post-medieval ideas on exactly how we should all behave and, and flipping them upside down, showing them under a microscope of modern ideas and saying, isn't this a little bit fucked up? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you, if you had been raised, uh, with this story be a little more fucked up than you are now? Mm -hmm. And, and while yes, it'd be really funny if, um, you know, James Corden and I fucking hate James Corden. I'm sorry. I really (laughs) do. Um, (laughs) It, wouldn't it be funny if he like his dumbass like stumbled into a a, a a tree and was able to gently get us out of the the Alice in Wonderland stomach of this wolf. Mm-hmm. Moments like that make it a lot more gentle. Mm-hmm. I, I it was it was very like that all, uh, the I was I felt very jarred when him when Johnny Depp eating little Red Riding Hood uh was such a gentle scene mm-hmm. that reminds me and I'm pretty sure they did it on purpose of of uh, Alice in Wonderland because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. she had like the Alice in Wonderland shoes and yeah. stockings on and she's sort of like falling down the the wolf's throat yeah. and becomes a lot smaller mm-hmm. where she meets her grandma inside but like that happens after like this big musical number where as you said it is a musical number about an adult wolf or man preying on a young child Mm -hmm. um and so that to me felt a thousand times scarier Mm. uh than uh than you know somebody theoretically being cannibalized
1: right i think also one of the problems with that scene um the song that that, um, you're referring to is i know things now which little red sings to the baker and explaining what happened and whatnot and she's basically thankful and what she's learned it's sort of an ironic song about what did we learn today um (laughs) and and if people are not familiar with the plot like the baker and his wife are on the hunt for a bunch of items that the witch has uh, sent them because they want to get pregnant and uh, the witch plays a curse on the baker and the baker's wife's house Preventing them from being able to get pregnant, etc., etc. But I rewatched this like a couple weeks ago and then I rewatched it to, uh, just now. And what is weird to me is that there's, for someone who adores Chicago, I love Chicago. It was an extremely mm. formative film for me as a, as a kid and as a cinephile and as someone who loves musicals. There's a striking lack of imagination for most of these musical numbers. And I think that has partly to do with the kinds of music, the kind of music that Sondheim writes, and also the lack of imagination of Rob Marshall as a director, because I Know (laughs) Things Now is a song that is being told from one person to the other, and kind of ironically explains something that's just happened. And the same thing happens with um, Giants in the Sky, which is Jack telling the baker, like what what's going on in the sky and and it's more both songs are are more pieces of self-reflection mediating on what their relationship is to themselves and the things that their parents tell them to do or don't do and to visualize that you run into the problem of either making it too literal with no kind of panache whatsoever or making it too or or not doing anything with it. And I think both both songs, you have the characters just telling the baker and it's just shots of them telling the baker this thing. And it doesn't work in film the way that it does on stage because you don't need that, you have that suspension of disbelief. Uh, In a film, you need something visually compelling to latch onto um, unless you have like an already developed or strong attachment to the character and their journey. Cause otherwise you're just watching, you're you're watching two people talk from multiple angles, but it's not interesting as opposed to watching like Witt Stillman film, uh, a couple people talk or Noah Baumbach or Elaine May or something. And even then they have like an understanding of framing and composition, which makes their movements and their blocking and whatnot, and their placement within the frame, make sense for the way that the conversation flows whereas this it's like it feels very contrived i i
0: think i finally um maybe not finally finally is a bad word i think uh after that i i understand exactly what you mean when you said uh was it lonnie price who directed the the neil patrick harris yeah. version mm-hmm. of company that you hated yeah um where you said that it was just sort of uh, almost like directed by a fan where where there was no imagination and yeah. uh, I, I, I i I'm starting to understand um that it's it's almost um like rob marshall's directing here is extremely didactic it's mm-hmm. it's it's like Sondheim wrote this song about what happened to jack and and when we're on a stage theoretically we can't have. All of this, you know, visually represented mm-hmm. because we're we you know we're bound by the uh, the laws of reality mm-hmm. and and what we can and cannot show on stage and then filmically we we don't have that mm-hmm. we can show whatever we want and so Rob Marshall decides to do both and he mm. he'll he'll have people didactically say. Uh, sit down well not sit down but you know dance around and and sing these conversations to one another Mm -hmm. and uh you know we we just watched her get eaten Mm -hmm. seeing seeing the alice in wonderland down the throat and the james corden thing um is neat Mm -hmm. but why you know this doesn't necessarily need to be a two hour and five minute long film Mm -hmm. This could this could theoretically have been cut down quite a bit by just making that whole scene the song mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah and
0: and uh, and thereby at least giving the director some license mm-hmm. to try to tell the story instead of sort of being beholden to show the story have each of the songs in the order that they're supposed to be, Mm -hmm. and then just, you know, it it feels very shoehorned. Yeah,
1: there's so little, like, aesthetic momentum in this film. It has very little perspective to me. And there are bits of it that, where you can see an idea that could have been fleshed out. Like, it takes to a song where the baker and his wife are kind of finally coming upon an agreement of how to work together to get all these items. Um, before the last midnight uh, and so that they can get pregnant and whatnot. It, uh, some of that is filmed like through the woods and through the trees and you get this sort of sense of voyeurism, which is really interesting. What they cut out of the original text is that um, the narrator is becomes a character. The narrator is at first a separate character, but then he gets pulled into the story. But I think what's compelling about what could have happened with It Takes Two and what they could have taken from the original is that with that sense of voyeurism, you have this someone, this person on the outside looking and observing at all these different characters from fairy tales, running around, wishing for whatever they want, getting their wishes, realizing that their wishes are not what they necessarily bargained for, watching these people basically transgress certain moral or ethical boundaries, or at least in, come into contact where they have to question and interrogate them and giving the audience a sort of like um an avatar as it were to intrude upon that i think is way more interesting than what actually ended up ended up happening um even though like it sort of plays into the idea that the part of into the woods is about um familial and inherited trauma for lack of a better word and the sins of the father and and the relationships that we have to our biological parents or our makeshift makeshift families or or found families. It that stuff never really comes through with a sense of clarity. So I think what they did with the narrator ends up being very, very frustrating. Um, and then like a song Giants in the Sky is one of my favorite songs because it portrays the wonder and the and the, the uh, fear and the thrill of finding a new world and after you've wanted to get away from the world that you live in for so long and then realizing that the world that you thought was so exciting is not... Um, what you really wanted it to be and that you really come to miss and value what you once had um, There's a line that goes you think of all the things you see and you're back again only different than before and It's a, it's about like internal change and the same thing with on the steps of the palace Where these songs are like telling the audience about this? decision this very in- mechanized decision, this very emotional decision that they have to make for themselves and for Cinderella whether she's going to leave, what she's going to do after running away from the prince at the ball again and it's just so unimaginative how either of these things are done and I understand that it's very hard to kind of convey basically songs that are confessional to an audience but it it just feels very stagnant to me.
0: Yeah, I mean going back to to one of those recent points you made about the idea of internal change uh hearing hearing you talk talk more and more and more about um into the woods is making me enjoy it less <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. and uh, no it's fine um which is good because uh it, at least it makes me i guess intellectualize what, what i've uh what i've just watched and uh, you're 100% right, in my opinion, there, where as much as, as I wanted to I, – I wanted to hate this a lot because of James Gordon, and now I have the hateable. reasons – and now I have the reasons to hate it, Kyle, <laughs> so thank
1: you. You're welcome.
0: Um, and now I can talk shit again about James Corden, he's, he's, and that's really what's
1: important. I liked him very, very briefly when he was in One Man, Two Governors. How dare you? When I'm going to delete when, this
0: podcast now.
1: <laughs> when I had not seen him in the whole thing, but like the previews of One Man, Two Governors when he wasn't like big and famous, it was like, oh, he seems fairly charming and, and affable, but then as he is... Infiltrated American culture in particular. I know, I know you're you're have your your roots in London and everything, um, but we've had to deal with him for make, doing all those song things that he does on his show that become viral clips for so long. Ugh. Carpool Karaoke, God. What a piece of shit! What a smarmy fuck! Yeah, and that's also like a problem with him playing the baker because like the baker can't be smarmy. But sorry, you, you were gonna say
0: yeah right i no i was going to uh uh write a biography about james corden <laughs> called uh, when charm turns to Smarm," <laughs> and uh yeah no he's um god i don't want to talk shit about somebody on my podcast especially james corden who seems like he might be nice in, in real
1: life oh is he awful I've, in real life i heard that he um he's he does unfair wages or he has unfair wages for his writers Uh,
0: yeah. All right. That's another reason to hate him. Uh, I don't need many more. (laughs) An acquaintance
1: of mine profiled him for a magazine and my, my understanding was that he did not have a pleasant time. Oh, good! Oh, well, this is
0: wonderful. <laughs> See, this is why I do this podcast. Right here is to find out that the people I hate are in fact quite hateable, quite easily hateable, and uh, you know that's what we need in these times, yeah. Kyle. We yeah. we we're all coming together over the internet,
1: over Facetime, yada yada yada. We we still need people to hate. Disdain is like the great way. The great. Um, way to to bring people together in my opinion. Some of my closest friendships are built on our mutual disdain for other things and other people.
0: (laughs) I find those to be uh, some of the strongest friendships. I I, I definitely every time... uh... Every time uh, a few of my very close friends and I see James Corden, we, we mostly either, if we're able to change the channel, change the channel immediately or just boo very loudly uh, until we're able to change it. And so, um, you know, I understand exactly what you mean. It's it's uh, God, hate is such a powerful thing. And uh, and yeah. That's that's what I want all my listeners to take away from this episode. <laughs> oh boy, see that's what happens. James Corden, this is what you've done to me. This is a night supposed to be a nice podcast where we make people love art and now it's just a podcast about hate. But
1: no no. Enough about hating James Corden. I would recommend this film. And I want to sing the praises of Emily Blunt, who plays the Baker's oh, Wife, she's great! who is wonderful. I actually prefer her to most um, versions of the Baker's Wife that I've seen. Um, and she has this really beautiful fragility to her, but also this strong-headedness. Um, my favorite, I think my favorite song from the whole musical, and my favorite from this particular version of it it's like my favorite version of this song it's moments in the woods and it's after prince charming has had an affair with uh with the baker's wife because he's married to cinderella anna kentrick mm-hmm. plays cinderella and she does it on the steps of the palace by the way anyway uh, clearly i'm have the the weed is hitting me hard enough that i'm not <laughs> able to keep my timelines correct <laughs> but uh so Prince Charming has has had this like fling with um, the baker's wife in the middle of the woods as they're looking for something. I don't remember. And What's the song called? Moments in the Woods. Moments in the Woods. And this is after the prince is just leaving her and saying, um, "You are so brave to be alone in the woods. You, I'll remember you because it was a r- really nice sex. It's not sex in the Disney version, but it's in in." the original thing and in all other productions it's clear that they fucked. I'm sorry, am I allowed to say oh, fuck yeah. on this podcast?
0: Oh, I've said it a bunch of times. This is a podcast about getting shit faced and watching movies. So uh yeah, no, we say we say everything but slurs on this podcast. Amazing.
1: It is clear that Prince Charming and the biggest wife have fucked. And so she is wrestling with the fact that she's it's done that such this.
0: a silly scene and especially with how uh how ridiculous um uh, uh, what is his name? What is the
1: prince's name? Hemsworth. Hemsworth Pine. Pine. No, really? Which one's Hemsworth? Hemsworth is Thor, isn't he? Yeah, isn't it? Oh yeah, you're Pine. They look. They all look the same to me.
0: I mean, it's just handsome white boys in Hollywood. I'll. I'll give it to you. That's fair. Um, um Chris Pine. He says something about. Um, it's like being fear. like being fierce in the woods, or like being How- ferocious in the woods.
1: Um, foolishness can happen in the woods. Once again,
0: please. Yeah, where she's like, I don't want to be foolish, and she's like, Foolishness can happen in the woods. That's. I mean, I just love that line. Where where it's just this, the ways in which he's seducing her. Yeah. Just, just. I guess are that Sondheimian uh, contradiction of, of everything that we've heard mm-hmm. in fairy tales and all this stuff and, mm-hmm. and uh, all these women who have to automatically fall for these, uh, these guys mm-hmm. giving them these dumb lines. And, and he really just writes for uh, the Prince here, just mm-hmm. such
1: great dumb lines. Right. And no one does what they're like supposed to do in really interesting ways. Cause um, Prince Charming isn't supposed to be cheating on Cinderella and the baker's wife isn't supposed to be cheating on her husband and Cinderella is supposed to be in love with Prince Charming, but she feels this great this these mixed emotions of being in the castle and being part of a, a, a wealthier family than where she comes from and, and being with this man who she thought she wanted but then realizes she doesn't actually. But there's this after they fuck. She has to really wrestle with what's happened, and what she realizes is how good it felt to not be attached to the life that she's always known, the lifestyle, the the situation as the baker's wife. She doesn't have a name other than the baker's wife, and I think that's indicative of how assigned she, the, the sort of assignation of her role in that relationship and in that broader story and being able to escape from that. She says, while um, well, he's like seducing her, um, he's, she says um, something like, I don't know what this is, This I'm in the wrong story. And, as, mm-hmm. and after they fucked, she's wrestling with this event that's happened, realizes that she liked it a little bit and wishes that there could be this liminal space where she can both have the baker as her husband who's committed and loves her, but also have this kind of side thing that allows her a sense of freedom and a sense of um, autonomy and a kind of expression that she's never been able to to voice outside of this like, nuclear or aspirationally nuclear dynamic. She plays it just brilliantly and so tender and the way that her voice breaks, because she's not a trained singer and um, in the way that some of the other performers are, it just really adds the depth of sensitivity to that role and to those lyrics it's 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 one of
0: those things where where the the fourth wall comes down and as much as i believe i read somewhere that sondheim hates brecht um, (laughs) but it, it is one of those uh and that might be um that might be one of his uh his mentors might have hated brecht but um these these uh ideas of when a character is only given a name such as the baker's wife and they have to sort of fulfill that role and yet they're able to somehow look out of the musical as musicals often do they they look outside of uh, for me at least they look outside of reality of what's going on of this is my reflection of the emotions that are taking place in this scene. Let me sing them to you to, to get them across to you, audience. Obviously, this is not how life works. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are watching this thing. And so you have to reflect on these songs. And it, it is... That sort of meta-reflexive moment where Emily Blunt is saying, I wish I was in a different story. I wish instead of in this film, I wasn't Baker's wife. I was princess number one. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have that designation. I wish it, it, with a simple stroke of a pen, I could be somebody completely different because uh, my role is my role in this and in life is only defined on that one label on on a number of letters that if i could if i could change them from baker to princess then all of a sudden i could live this much more interesting life and be a part of these much more interesting scenarios mm-hmm. um, and and uh, thereby get the best as you said of both worlds. And so uh, yeah it, it is one of those really tremendous scenes um, in in this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And that scene I think purely works on both the brilliance of the song and of Blunt's acting. I don't think that Marshall had much to do with it
0: oh no not at all no I don't remember any of the directing I remember what Chris Pine was doing like behind trees Mm -hmm. like just being sort of goofy but like he's hard to take his take my eyes off of in in a scene because of just how like made up he is here Mm -hmm. he is just sort of he is I mean for me he basically is only uh, that goofy version of William Shatner's um, star Trek guy, Mm -hmm. captain, uh, what is uh, the original Kirk? Yeah. So he's just like captain Kirk most of the time where like, he's, he's always bobbing his head and, and, uh, just being like, I am extremely handsome. Mm -hmm. How are we doing behind these trees? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, so pretty much in everything I see Chris Pine is that. And, uh, and this was no different, but, uh, you're right. It, it, Emily Blunt is the, the emotional center of that scene. Chris mm. Pine is a very goofy uh, ancillary part. And then the directing doesn't exist because it's just... I guess we could just like shoot him head on the whole... The entire time and not really do anything
1: else. There's definitely a version of this film and in, in, in this musical where Prince Charming has an arc that you can get emotionally invested in. But it's not here. It's not in this film. And maybe... You should be the person to write that. Interesting. I <laughs> I think the person who should do Into the Woods next as a film, if that ever happens, is Terrence Malick. Oh, wow. He would get it. He understands Just like Go, Just like GoPro Terrence Malick? Yeah, GoPro Terrence Malick. People were, like, twirling through the woods. But he, I think... In the actual woods? Yeah, but I think he would have a much better understanding of the emotional complexity of the piece.
0: I, yeah, I mean, what an interesting, uh supposition Terrence Malick directing a musical
1: I don't want he's already me. sort
0: of gotten close i'll give it i'll give it to you mm-hmm. song to song is yeah. very very close i still haven't seen uh what's the newest one uh hidden life which is very good it'd be so great to watch him direct that yeah
1: also claire d maybe
0: oh see i could see that i could see that being amazing yeah. See, what I want is like a Michael Bay into the woods. <laughs> Just a bunch of 360-degree shots of a characters singing in fake woods well, with some lens flare. You know,
1: Michael Bay's favorite film is West Side Story. I do, yeah. So, yeah. It's not, I think you could do it. It's not the furthest thing from reality that I could imagine. I, I would no. want to watch that. I don't... I mean, I, like, knew I you'd would watch it. We'd all watch it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's necessarily the musical that makes the most sense for him, but I would definitely watch a Michael Bay Sondheim adaptation. Oh, undoubtedly. All right, brother. I have
0: uh, enjoyed this chat. Uh, more than uh, more than drunken words,
1: can, <laughs> I have uh, can it.
0: probably put into it.
1: I have also enjoyed it more than Stone words can put into it.
0: Good. I'm glad you had a great time. Do you have anything else to say about Stephen Sondheim or to the listeners, uh, where they can possibly find your
1: work, mm-hmm. uh, if they so choose to seek you out? Um, they can find me tweeting ceaselessly about Sondheim's company in particular um, at. Kyle Kerner, T-Y-L-E-K-U-R-N-E-R. It's just a spoonerism of my name because I'm an extraordinarily creative person. Um, and you can find my writing all over the internet, primarily Pace Magazine, um, GQ, and The New York Times.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me, Kyle. This has been an
1: absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. You as well.